Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, join me in a shout out to Credit Karma for supporting my podcast. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. common core that cuts across all human trafficking victims is vulnerability. The abuser and the trafficker being seen as the savior or the only human care that they've ever experienced. You know, the recruitment process doesn't happen in back alleys and scary bus stations. These women are learning to seek affirmation in a pimp. There's a tennis shoe pimp, there is the player pimp, and then there's a gorilla pimp. There is no law enforcement solution without partnership. In an outlaw's world, they say somebody's getting screwed, but nobody's having sex. Arresting the supply side is easy. We are not attending to supply and demand equally, not even close. Dr. Celia Williamson is executive director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo, where she is also a distinguished professor of social work. Dr. Williamson's research focuses on human trafficking, with particular attention to the sex trafficking of American juveniles. She has published numerous articles, delivered over 200 presentations, and been the keynote speaker at dozens of conferences. She is a recognized expert on the intersection of prostitution, vulnerable women, and drug abuse. Dr. Williamson founded the first anti-trafficking program in Ohio in 1993. She has completed numerous articles and research reports and edited two books on sex trafficking. And while she's certainly an academic, her groundbreaking work happens at the street level through real-life engagement with victims and those who traffic them. Dr. Williamson founded the Lucas County Human Trafficking Coalition. She sits as chair of the Research and Analysis Subcommittee for the Ohio Attorney General's Human Trafficking Commission and is an editorial manager for the Journal of Human Trafficking. And most recently, she opened the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute in 2015 to further the mission of combating human trafficking and supporting victims of this crime. I'm honored that Celia Williamson has agreed to share her compelling personal and professional story with us. Dr. Williamson, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you and and learning so much. And I uh, I want to start by saying I'm not I don't want to embarrass you or even make you feel old. But as I told some experts in the field of social work and uh, and sex trafficking and community organizations that we were going to have this discussion, they they said, "Oh, Doctor Doctor Williamson has done historically significant work in in <laughs> research and in the lives of people." And and I, you know, the, making you sound like some historical figure. Now, I, I I'm glad to have you with us, but but yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to make you feel old either. But you're you're held in very high regard, which is why we're having this this discussion. And um, well, I think in the in the lifetime of human trafficking, I am what you call an OG, like original gangster way back from 1993, before people were even thinking of the issue. So people know they've read some of my work. And, uh, you know, I've likely been involved when a lot of people just started getting involved, I had been involved. It's true. It's true. And and again, I, I see you as perhaps among the first modern researchers anyway, to share to shed some light into the what I call the shadow world of sex trafficking and street level prostitution particularly. So I have to start with this question. How did a young girl from Toledo, Ohio, end up on a, a path that uh, that you've taken? 
Yeah, I I really grew up in a high crime sort of low income area of Toledo on the north side, and you know I had three friends that were trafficked. Uh, one was murdered, one suffered with drug addiction her whole life, and the other one escaped. Um, my other friends, none of them graduated high school, um, and I ended up pursuing a PhD. So I had no idea that people were trafficked until I was in my mid twenties, and then looked back on what had happened to my friends and started putting it all together. So I inadvertently went back to my community as a social worker. And that's where I really started to learn what was really going on in my community. I had no idea, you know, just growing up in my community. Well, I think that's why I, in large part, decided I wanted to ask you to be a guest is because not only did you have no idea what was going on just beneath the surface, but but the vast majority of Americans have absolutely no idea what's going on at, in that you know that street that could just be a few blocks away, that rest stop on the highway that they drive by. They just don't know, and it and it's it's a bubble that that we live in, and I I want to try to pierce that bubble today if we can with some of the amazing mm-hmm. work and research that you've done. It sounds doctor, that your your life could have easily taken another path with the way you're describing um, the environment you were raised in. Tell us more about when you learned, what, tell us more about the impact of having friends who were trafficked, even murdered. Um, what what age level are we talking about? And 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 where where did you kind of have a decision point where I'm, I'm not going that way? Yeah, you know, but for the grace, you know, <laughs> go I. Um, that's that's a very true statement for me. I was very much in that crowd and seen by systems and my public school system just really written off. Um, I did not demonstrate to them that I had any talents, scholastic skills. You know, I got C's and D's. I skipped a lot of school. And so my high school ended up giving me home economics during my entire senior year today that I would find that criminal, but I didn't go to social studies and science. I had home economics all day, every day of my senior year. And I was required to get a job at Burger King or some service industry job. And it was sort of a a lot of subliminal messages coming to me saying that you, you will not be successful. And that's why I'm a, a, a great fan of being disobedient in some regards, not listening to the track uh, that that you might be placed in in life, because I had everything going against me, yet I ended up trying college out anyway. I failed the, the very basic writing course. I took it again. I failed again. I took it a third time. And then I used the remainder of my electives to really take writing courses, you know, previous to that, a few people know that my first ambition was to be a drug dealer, right? Because that's what I saw in my community. And I thought, well, that's pretty awesome. Like they have that that was the model. That was the (laughs) model that you had. Those those people looked successful to you, right? Exactly. And uh, they were cool. They, you know, everything. And so I did. I, I bought a big pound of weed. I bought some baggies. I bagged it up. I thought I was going to be a great drug dealer. This is my new career. And to celebrate my new career, I had a big party, which is one of the things you should never do. And when I woke up the next day, uh, of course, all of the marijuana that I bought had been stolen. And I was right back out of business. Thank the Lord. And yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that may that may have been the the the, the best uh, most impactful robbery in 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 a, in a life. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I thought, well, you're a terrible drug dealer. So why don't you give this college thing a try? So that's where I I ended up going and being very fascinated by social workers and what they do to help people. And thought, well, that's that that's a good and noble profession. I think I'd like to do that. Yeah. And their message here is worth repeating, which is, you know, you talked about kind of not following the expectations that people have set for you when those expectations are so very limiting and, and just kind of rebelling against them. And I, and I think Mm -hmm. many people have that story. They're supposed to go into this business or that they're supposed to major in this or that, or they were never college material. Um, And just 
the ability to say time out, I'm going to make my own decision and do my own mm-hmm. thing, I think is just really, really significant. So, so now the college environment's happening. Social work um, is your chosen major, it sounds like. And we still need to get you somehow to, into the, this journey where you're looking at trafficking and victims mm-hmm. and community work and then a master's and then a PhD. Put that all together for us. Yeah, well, in my my master's program, I had to do an internship and I was driving in back and forth to work. I was working in a community center. I loved working with families and kids and um, and I would pass these women on the street and they were involved in prostitution. And I, I really honestly did not like them. I didn't like them. I didn't like the fact that they were there. I didn't like that there were condoms that I had to sweep up in front of my house, in front of our center. I, I didn't like they brought drugs into the community. Uh, we're trying to work with kids and family, families. You know, we I I did not want them around. And then a friend of mine came in that also worked at the center and told me that he threw a big glass of water on one of them. And somehow I really didn't like that. And so I went back to my office and I thought, wow, okay, so who am I supposed to be as as this supposed Christian? And who am I supposed to be as a social worker? Because our primary mission is to work with the vulnerable, poor, and oppressed. And I was working with the beautiful, worthy, and deserving, patting myself on the back thinking it's great. (laughs) And so so I really had an epiphany and I thought, this is the vulnerable, poor, and oppressed. And I started to drive by every day and I started to try to catch their eye and wave and they would just ignore me and i just kept doing that day after day week after week trying to build a relationship well one night at the center i was going home locking up and somebody came to the door was one of the women on the street and it was her son's birthday and she said you know who i am and you know what i do and you know i haven't raised any money and it's my son's birthday And I invited her in and I went up in the attic and I got some old Christmas gifts from one of our community parties and got her some cake out of the kitchen and some blue frosting because he really liked the color blue and build a relationship with her. And so when I would pass by, I would wave and I would stop and I would talk to her until it became too uncomfortable for her. And I kept doing that until I met the second person and a third person and I would get out the car and I would stay. And I did that three times a week for six months. And I ended up getting the best education because I learned where the drug houses were, who the dope boys were, who the the pimps were, uh, the women, how they kept themselves safe, what the protocols, just a wealth of education. And I also went to the library and I tried to learn there. And at the end of six months, I asked them if if we had a program in Ohio that would work to help women like you, what would it be called and what would it entail? And so they really designed the program and that became the first direct service program in Ohio um, that works with trafficking victims. And that's the one that you heard about and knew about. Yeah, I think people should should know, you know, many of my listeners might go, be going, this is kind of a different topic for, for Frank. Where where do these things intersect with Frank? And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So when I, when I was the special agent in charge of the FBI in Northern Ohio, the FBI's Cleveland office, Dr. Williamson's work, her center, actually was nominated and received the FBI Director's Award for Community Leadership. And um, it was well-deserved because, and we'll get to this in a second, it really not only deserved it because it was changing lives in the community, but it helped to partner to change the dynamic of how law enforcement viewed trafficking victims. And in fact, I'm using the phrase victim when in reality, back then, many law enforcement agencies did not see these women and sometimes men and sometimes transgendered people as victims at all, but rather simply as criminals that needed to be handcuffed. And I, mm-hmm. I want to get in into that uh, as well. So this, this, uh, this is also a radical concept you're mentioning, which is that imagine that the victims, the people who need the services actually help design this, the system that, that can help them. 
And so how, how does that work? What did you, what did you create and what services were they saying that they needed to help get them where they needed to be? Well, they said it should be called second chance because everybody deserves a second chance. And so that became the name of it. They said, Celia, we, we need somebody to go in the jails. We need somebody to go in the juvenile detention. And I said, juvenile detention. (laughs) They said, oh yeah, when we got started, we were 13 and 14 and 15. We didn't have control. The adults had the control. You should be in drug treatment programs because that's what happens when we suffer trauma and we can't get to counseling like normal people. When we're underground, we use drugs to cope with our trauma. So we're people that are in drug treatment programs. We're people in mental health programs because we suffer a lot of trauma. You should be there. You should be in those jails. You should go to court and advocate for us. Uh, You should hold groups. We should be in recovery. All the things that they said are the things I started doing, including street outreach. They said, just drive around and do talk to us and build relationships. And because when you build trust, then it's not going to happen immediately. But over time, then people want to work with you. They don't care if you are this agency or that agency or you know, you belong to this police force or that, they know you and they trust you. And so that's really been the model that we've used uh, for several years. It's been built on relationship and built on trust and, and built on truth and leading people to recovery. Yeah, trust, I mean, trust seems to play a huge role here. You, you just described the kind of repeated touch points that you needed to have with these victims um, in order for them to even approach you for, for help. It, it doesn't happen overnight. You talked about even work, your work uh, and street outreach. What did that look like? What is, what is street outreach to sex traffickers, tra- sex trafficking victims even look like? Well, you know, I, I didn't go out by myself as somebody who's a novice. So I took somebody who was very familiar with the game, we call it, you know, the game. And they taught me just like an apprentice. So we would stop at a place and they would say, just watch this scene. Because normal people walking around, driving around can't see it. But if you sit still, it's like one of those paintings where the scene just comes out at you. If you sit still, you see this woman walking, she never gets anywhere. You see that she doesn't have a purse with her. You see those guys over there in the park that are sitting, they just glance over, watch the scene. This is the scene within the scene. And so I learned how to pick out of those scenes, people that I would approach. And then we would talk to the women and we would say, hey, we're here, we're around. Uh, You see us around, say, hey, you need a sandwich, you need condoms, you need, information to get into a shelter. Then we started letting them know about dangerous dates because there were customers that would remove door handles and they would get the women in the car and then they would abuse them or beat them, rape them. And so teaching the women, hey, don't get in this red, you know, charger or whatever it is. And so we'd put them on telephone poles and we'd educate the women. So we just kept building credibility. We kept building trust. And the women would go to court and they would say, well, I want to go to the second chance program. And then the judge would say, well, what's the second chance program? <laughs> so, so we were a very underground program. And I just remember one day just getting out of my car to do street outreach and a woman saying, you know, okay, let's go. And I said, where are we going? <laughs> she said, "She said I know who you are. You think I don't read the newspaper? You think I don't know what's happening? And I said, well, who am I? Well, you're the woman that's going to uh, take me in for treatment. And wow. I said, okay. Wow. And she said, I knew you were going to show up today or I was going to be severely hurt today. So this is a blessing. Let's go. And I drove her to treatment. Wow. So, you know, a, a lot of what you're describing is very similar to what law enforcement is supposed to do every day, which is to observe, understand, mm-hmm. gather intelligence, be a part of the community, yet see beneath and beyond the community. But it sounds also to me that you were so far ahead of local police and, and sheriff's departments in really understanding the threats and risk. You mentioned educating these, these traffic victims about the dangers of getting in the wrong car with the wrong guy, you know, 
police were, weren't doing that at the time that mm-hmm. you were doing that. And, and so did you find yourself at odds with the police? Did you find yourself ahead of the police in terms of this work? I mean, it depended on what time period, but the police were doing some of that supportive work. They just had no idea they were because when I was asked, when I would ask the women or some of the underage girls, like, who's your support system? And they would say, what's that? Well, who cares about you? Oh, officer so-and-so. I said, well, how so? Oh, because every time they see me, they chase me down. They throw me in the back of the car. <laughs> they buy me a can of Coke. And they say, why are you doing this? You're, you could do better than this. You are worth more than this. And that officer may not have never known that that was the person that they identified as their support system. Mm. Now, we also had police officers that were not positive and supportive. Police officers that said, how much money do you have in your pocket? I want to go to lunch. So it was very precarious police officers that would put uh, a person's life on the line. Hey, go over there and make a, a, a drug buy. And it's like, well, I can't do that because that's going to place me in, <laughs> in severe risk. Well, if you don't, you go to jail. And there are some women that would go to jail because they, they would say, I'm not going to lose my life going over there, making a drug buy. And then you bust the place later on. So just like in social work, there's a mixture in social work. There are a lot of a lot of judgmental, stigmatizing people that are not helpful and are very much re-traumatizing. And so it's really who you interact with and who you build that trust with. But when you do, they can make a world of difference um, in a person that's vulnerable's life. Let me take one minute to tell you about the latest advances in cybersecurity. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. I'm all about security, and today security is online security. It's your online security. And here's why I choose Avast for my online security. Its antivirus is award-winning. It stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It has PC speed-up, which optimizes the background activity of your apps in order to speed up your PC. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. With Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, back to our guest. You've talked about uh, trust a couple of times. You've certainly talked about uh, trauma, abuse, the, the, the idea that in, in some cases police officers are part of that trauma and exploitation and abuse. Your research gets deep into a kind of, for, for, what, for what I'll call kind of the, how, how a trafficking victim comes to be. What, what, what are the commonalities you found across the board as you sit down with, gosh, is it, is it hundreds of potentially oh, yeah. uh, hundreds of victims, women? Yeah. Um, what, what are you seeing across the board as common themes in their, in their early lives? Yeah. The, the common core that cuts across all human trafficking victims is vulnerability. Now, the type of vulnerability might be very different. So it's not like you walk outside your house and someone sees you and they go, oh, there's a potential victim that I can snatch into my car and victimize. That's not really how uh, particularly sex trafficking works. Traffickers who are pimps are looking for victims that are already vulnerable. It's not like you walked out your door and then you were trafficked, but you were likely sexually abused or neglected early on. You were maybe you experienced a rape when you were a teenager. Um, Maybe you were drug addicted. Maybe you're homeless. Maybe you ran away from home. There's something that that you have a great need. And that person steps forward or sends their recruiter to step forward 
to meet that need. And that is the way it works. And when, you know, we have a lot of people walking around talking about being snatched in white vans and kidnapped and all that. These are things that they make CNN because they're outrageous. The movies are, are make-believe. So these are the things people think that human trafficking is about kidnapping and snatching you and chaining you to a bed. No, it's more common that you're manipulated into this. You become very loyal and committed to your trafficker. You think you love your trafficker. It's a chaining of your mind and your heart, not your wrists and your ankles. So tell us about what makes that young person so vulnerable? What what are the features, the mm-hmm. factors, almost like a checklist of things you can yeah. see in someone's life and say, this is going to go south quickly? What 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 What's in their lives? If I see a runaway, I'm extremely concerned because right now we think runaway is a low-level crime. We think it's not expensive. 98, 99% of the kids return home anyway. No big deal. It's a very big deal because it's who they They met while they were on the run. Did they meet a a drug dealer? Are they a budding drug addict? It's very expensive. Did they meet someone who said they liked them or a new friend or a new boyfriend who's going to eventually manipulate and traffic them and make money for weeks, months, and years? Because if I can get my victim to participate in their own victimization along with me, that's the game. So if I have somebody that's homeless, if I have somebody that has been abused and they needed that healthy type of love and they didn't, they didn't get that, but I can meet them online or I can meet them in person and I can say like, I love you. I want you to have all the things you want in life, but my actions are that I'm selling you and beating you, which sounds crazy. But for some of our women, it's like, but you don't understand. This is the first person in my life whoever was worried about where I was when I didn't show up on time. Mm. This gets, this gets, this gets us into the, well, let, before we, we get to the kind of this dynamic of, of even the abuser and the trafficker being seen as the savior or the only human care that they've ever experienced. What, what other things are, 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 do you see drug abuse early? Do you see mental health issues? All of the above, you mentioned abuse. We're talking sexual abuse as a child. What, what are the commonalities there? Yeah, all of the above. Mental health issues make you very vulnerable. Most of our victims have post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, or anxiety. Very common. Actually, out of the 89 clients that we had this year, 85% of them had a substance use disorder. They're addicted to drugs. Drugs make you very vulnerable. Actually, I'm going to testify in a case Monday where the trafficker is saying that this were the, the two victims, this was their free choice. And what I'm testifying is that when you get somebody addicted to meth, there's coercion because I just withhold the meth. And then, you know, if I give you the meth, you do it. If I withhold the meth, you know, so I can control you very much so using drugs. So drugs are a a big factor in that either as a method of control or as a method of treatment for the victim, the victim can't always get to counseling and so and therapy and so they'll use drugs to cope with years of chronic and complex trauma that hasn't been taken care of so mental health drugs homelessness basic needs not being met all of these are vulnerabilities not being loved and a great need to be loved all of these make someone very vulnerable and then that trafficker is not a scary you know, the recruitment process doesn't happen in back alleys and scary bus stations. And the people that approach you aren't scary, creepy guys. Sometimes they're women, sometimes they're teenage girls. And then the purchasers aren't the the creepy guy living under the bridge. These are people that have money, that live in your neighborhood, that you work with. And so the whole game is kind of flipped on its head and everybody's looking for the seedy, dirty you know, and, and it's happening before our eyes in very safe places. What what percentage of uh, the victims that you spoke with, that you deal with, interact with, are in fact uh, trafficker controlled, pimp controlled, mm-hmm. sex workers, sex traffic victims? I would say eighty five percent or or higher of the victims we work with um, kids, teens, and adult women. We haven't worked with men. Worked with a couple transgender, but mostly adult women and youth, uh, mostly girls, but also some boys. 
That's a high percentage. Um, and, and I think, you know, people need to understand uh, any notion that uh, this is an independent business enterprise by, by these women. Uh, remember that figure, 80%, at least at the street level, are being trafficked and pimp controlled. Your research even, um, your research opened some eyes into kind of almost a formal categorization of, of work styles. Um, among the victims, different kinds of identified prostitution, and then the same for pimps. Tell us a little bit about about the different categories of, of what you call work styles. Hey, let's hit pause so I can share a word from our newest sponsor, Credit Karma. In my personal life, I've always been a stickler for pristine personal finances, avoiding debt, paying down debt, and now here comes Credit Karma. Paying down debt can be stressful, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates. If you're tired of juggling due dates, consolidating with a personal loan could be your answer. That way, you'll have just one due date a month, and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for you. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you, so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances of approval, so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free, won't affect your credit scores, and could save you money. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com loan offers. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, so there's the pimp control that's happening. And then there's also a category called renegade. And these aren't words that I came up with. These are words from the street. But renegades are sort of renegade to the established process, which is pimp control. The traditional established process is pimp control. And in pimp control, there are a lot of rules, a lot of rules that the victims, their wife-in-laws to each other under each pimp. There are lots of rules, lots of terminology uh, where you place your eyes even and not place your eyes is very important. And when you violate that rule, then you're out of pocket and you're subject to consequences. So there, it's a very regimented, uh, it, pimping has been passed down generation to generation. The game never changes, but the name. So renegade is someone who won't follow the rules won't have a pimp, won't be controlled. Yet, it's a person that in the underground market, you would say earns an honest day's dollar in sex work, right? She's she's doing the work for the money, exactly, but not being controlled. Then there's an outlaw, which is an outlaw to the entire game. Like, not only is this person not being pimp controlled, but this person isn't doing, uh, isn't engaged in an honest transaction, as they would say, underground. So, I might tell you as an outlaw that this costs this much, but it doesn't cost that much, or I'm not doing exactly what I told you I was going to do. This is all about trickery, robbery. In an outlaw's world, they say somebody's getting screwed, but nobody's having sex. There you go. Yeah, yeah. or what, what cops call being rolled, a, a, a trick yeah. or a John being rolled by, by someone who never intended to have sex for money, but rather intended a criminal yes. uh, event to occur. And then on the pimp side, you also identified a couple of different kinds of pimps. What are what are those? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's a tennis shoe pimp, and this is somebody who isn't following the rules of the game, but needs money and may have one woman. Um, maybe he even sells sex, and she sells sex, and they just get money together to pay the rent, buy drugs, or whatever. It's it's sloppy. It's not respected. It's not regimented in the underground economy. Then there is the player pimp, and that is the actual uh, official pimp who is going to most likely read certain books. They're going to be mentored and guided by what, what we call OG pimps, um, and they learn all the rules of the game, and they are, in fact, an official player pimp respected in the underground economy. They also may be involved in drug sales, but they're also known as pimps. That person is very difficult to identify because that person looks like an alumni from a university. I mean, they're driving a nice Saab or Escalade or whatever. They're very articulate because 
a player pimp is is a finesse pimp. So a player pimp uses his brain and his charisma to lure his wife-in-laws into his stable. So he he's very intelligent. If if you knew him, you would think he's fun to be around because he uses his charisma. You would like him until you knew what he did. And then there's a gorilla pimp, which is a professional pimp, but not respected because a gorilla pimp is really just about snatching and grabbing, forcing and beating. And this gorilla pimp doesn't use his brain or his finesse to get the job done. He just uses brute force. And so in the underground economy, that's not well-respected at all. And then there's, uh, of course, a Mac. And a Mac is the whale of the human trafficking world. This is a global player or at least a national player that cuts across cities. Uh, a Mac is more likely to wear the traditional pimp dress that you might see in the 70s, where you see the yellow canary suit or the big hat with the feather in it or whatever. You know. But um, they're going to wear more of the traditional dress and you're not going to see them as often, but they exist. Hmm. Let's get into some of the solutions that you've discovered. I know none of that is easy and, and only comes over time and experience and seasoning, but let's explore what works in your mind with regard to law enforcement solutions. And, and it sounds like there is no single solution. In fact, when I say the phrase law enforcement solution, I'm very keenly aware there is no law enforcement solution without partnership. And, and then we'll move on to what you see works from a, uh, a social work perspective, a psychology perspective. Mm -hmm. put, put this together for me. What what's clearly doesn't work? And where did you see law enforcement kind of having its eyes opened? And what have you seen have some success? I think law enforcement has a lot of power. And I don't mean in the traditional sense. I mean, I don't mean the power to take people down and handcuff people. I don't, I don't mean that kind of physical power. And I think that's more detrimental actually and, and triggering and re-traumatizing. But if law enforcement understands that this is a population that has suffered a tremendous amount of trauma, a tremendous amount of victimization. And if we're able to see that and also understand that law enforcement has a lot of uh, emotional power in terms of helping survivors. The way you respond, the way you engage can have a lot of positive power toward, you know, you may not even see it or feel it. It's just a drop in the bucket, but you planted a seed. And when you don't recognize that you planted a seed because it, it didn't work fast enough, then maybe you start using the physical force. But in social work, we kind of learn that planting that seed is okay. It takes time. And we just plant that seed and plant another seed and water it and hopefully it starts to grow. But when I go back and I think about those women and those kids that said, you know, officer so-and-so was important in my life. The reason that was, was not because they were chased down or not because they were handcuffed or not because they were put in jail. It was because of the words that were said to them by that officer. And so that's the power I'm talking about. Because when you have a traumatized and highly stigmatized population and you show up as a population that are the good guys, right? Your perspective, they think, wow, this is, this is a really good person. And you treat them like the mud under your shoe. That's particularly hurtful given the good position that you stand in. And when you validate who they are just as a human being and their potential. Wow, that's powerful. And yeah. so, yeah. Well, rest assured, those pimps are doing that. These girls are learning, these women are learning to seek affirmation in a pimp. And that's mm -hmm. that's often violent. And, and often the rescuer, I mean, with regard to law enforcement, this cycle of arresting and throwing in lockup overnight a sex trafficking victim uh, you know, what, 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 just walk me through that. What, what happens when, when one of these young people are arrested, they're put in lockup, what ends up happening with them? And doesn't the, well, doesn't the pimp come in eventually as some kind of rescuer? Yeah. I mean, in my, just have 30 years of watching this, I've just find it to be ridiculous. They're arrested. They get out the next day. They're arrested. They get out. They get, I mean, our women had an average of 10 arrests, which we, we actually, uh, 
quantified, it was about $2,000 per arrest of wasted time. And then over time, she would be arraigned in court, she would plead not guilty, and she would be let go. I mean, it was, it's just a, a cycle that continues. He would put money on her books or maybe bail her out, or maybe he wouldn't, but he might just so she can get out and make more money. But what's worked the best is understanding the underlying social issues and the trauma and attending to those things. Um, so if there's a drug addiction, getting that person into treatment, if there's a lot of trauma, getting that person mandated into trauma treatment therapy, getting that person into a mental health facility or their medication stabilized, those are the things that we've seen be more effective than just arrest and release and arrest and release. And that's what success looks like. And tell us more about the Toledo area and how your program has kind of matured and, and, and been more established in terms of formality. What, what does it look like today in terms of alternatives to arrest, getting them the services they need? What, what's that look, look like in your county, your city? Well, we have a coalition and there are many anti-trafficking coalitions now across the U.S., but our coalition has about 50 members. We have the FBI task force that is actively participating in our coalition. They love it because uh, when they're there, we're very happy they're there, but we call in a lot of tips. And so our FBI task force is very busy because we feel like we're in partnership with them and they feel like they're in partnership with us and they respect that when we find a victim or they locate a victim, that we're getting them into our built continuum of care. So we're moving the victim to a place of where we call them a survivor and the survivor to thriver. We have scholarships for thrivers. We have groups, weekly groups for survivors. We have shelters and things for victims. So we try to build around 10 common services, legal services, housing, basic needs, you know, uh, medical, mental health, substance abuse. We train people in these agencies so that they understand human trafficking. And law enforcement respects the fact that they can do what they do and then turn that victim over to us and we can work on healing and recovery, which makes them feel satisfied in the work that they do, that they're not just re-arresting, re-arresting, re but we can actually get them, not, not a lot of them, and a lot of them repeat what they do, and a lot of them, because it takes a long time to build that trust and put down drugs, it's very difficult, but the law enforcement officers understand that they are a component, not the end-all, be-all, but they are a component, and they are a particularly important component. What we ask in the U.S. is for people to rescue and restore. And rescue is under the purview of law enforcement. But the restoration part is also important. And when we work together, instead of saying, oh, I know, I know law enforcement. I know what they're about. I don't trust them. Or law enforcement saying to the social workers, Oh, you tree hugging, rainbow bunny petting people. <laughs> it's like if we understand each other and respect each other, when we collaborate, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, the rescue without the restore simply doesn't work. And I have a I have a feeling there are a lot of uh, not only law enforcement organizations but social and community organizations that that think they're rescuing, and they might be by simply taking a victim out of that that life temporarily getting them a place to live and some food and 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 then they kind of pat themselves on the back and say we look yeah. we've rescued but the restore part sounds like a very long and often failed and try again process right absolutely it's but what you have to show somebody who has had broken trust see when they've been manipulated and beaten and traumatized and raped and sold what's been taken from them is hope and boundaries and relationship and trust and, and, and internal self-confidence and external safety and all these things have been taken from them. And so being able to restore those things means that we have to be consistent. I, I'm telling you, I wanna help you. I'm showing you, I wanna help you. And you don't believe me seven times, mm -hmm. 17 times, but the 18th time I'm still there. And that's what's important. Yeah, that's that's what matters. And, you know, we've had a, a long conversation focused almost entirely on the supply side of this economic equation of trafficking. We've got to spend some time 
talking about the demand side, the people who purchase sex for money. What? Give us your thoughts on on. I see some an, uh, analogy here to to the so-called war on drugs and supply and demand. We ever going to get our hands around the demand side of this? And what have you seen work or not not work? Well, the one thing I want to say is that uh, you know I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this as a tenured professor, and then I'm going to go on with my life, and your audience can take it as it is. But as long as we continue to 90, 95% uh, arrest the seller and not arrest the buyer because it's too expensive or it takes too many officers or you got to set up a whole sting, as long as we do that, we will continue to not arrest our way out of this problem because we are not attending to supply and demand equally, not even close because a, a, a seller has at least eight customers. So you actually have more opportunity to arrest customers, but everybody focuses on supply, which are vulnerable, poor women most of the time. I think it's it's I think it's a, a history of sexism. And as long as we continue to do that, we will make no progress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean you're you're right on some of these issues that that have historically precluded a real addressing of the demand. One of them is clearly sexism. Um, the, the other is, this is the easy way out. Arre- arresting the supply side is easy. Um, they're out there, they're visible. You can you can go online, you can see the ads, you can pop them left and right. Uh, and it's hard to arrest the guys who buy, mostly guys who buy the services, mm-hmm. you're going to end up with trials. You're going to end up with unpleasant surprises about the prominence of certain people in the community who you've, you've arrested. You might not want to know who these people are. Um, and no one's going to fight back on the on the vulnerable and exploited side in terms of arrest. So, exactly. but we got to, we, we've got to get got to get better at that. And some of it is largely awareness, having the conversation we've just had, learning that if you're buying these services, your money's not not going. To, you're deluding yourself if you think that money's going to that woman. Uh, it's going to a third party uh, somewhere, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and you and you better know, you better not be ignorant to the fact because if you bought somebody that was involved in street level prostitution, that's a misdemeanor crime. But if you participated in buying someone who was a human trafficking victim, you were participating in a felony crime, and you better know. Uh, what you're doing, because now it's a lot more risky for you. In Ohio, in 2014, we passed demand legislation. And so we are now very strong in Ohio in terms of customers who are purchasing victims and particularly underage victims. So in Ohio, you you don't want to do that in Ohio. I'll just say that. But there are a lot of states coming in line with laws like that. We are no longer giving a pass uh, to people who can afford lawyers and and are friends with legislators, and that that's not going to make a, a a big difference in Ohio anymore. Right, good. That's a, that's a good story. And uh, speaking of good stories, give us some give us some survivor. You mentioned the the path to survivorship and then survivor to thriver. Tell us what success looks like uh, in your experience, and give us some stories where this this is this really has ended happily. Oh, well, we've had graduates. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Toledo. I remember working with somebody who was working in the North End on Grain Street who was stabbed through the neck and, and thrown in an alley and left for dead. I watched her graduate with her bachelor's degree from the University of Toledo. That is a story that she was able to come all the way back to a level of success that no one thought was possible. But I've seen other stories of people who were trafficked, who had been beaten so bad that they had traumatic brain injury, but was also able to get social security and was able to get apartment and raise their children uh, in a healthy way, which is highly successful for them. You know, my best days are when I'm out in the community and somebody just walks up to me randomly and says, hey, do you remember me? Like I'm doing so well now. It's a, like that. It works. It can, it can work. Restoration yeah. can work. The right approach has to be 
implemented. So you're not the only one in this conversation. Uh, I'm not the only one in this conversation with a podcast. You you have one of your own. Uh, tell us about it. Tell us where where our listeners can find it. Yeah, it's called Emancipation Nation, and it is everywhere that you get your podcasts. And what I do is interview experts in the human trafficking field all across the U.S. and around the world. And we really drill down into more specific topics um, so that listeners who are anti-trafficking advocates could learn, grow, and carry the, the correct messages forward and learn the best interventions and how to increase awareness in a really effective ways. And so that's, that's where I focus some of my time. And if people want to learn more about your work, maybe even think about contributing or volunteering, uh, where, where can they go? Give us some places online, perhaps that they can, they can check, check more out here. Well, you can always email me, Celia at CeliaWilliamson.com. I email everyone back. Well, let me tell the truth. I have interns and they will email everyone back. (laughs) But uh, we also have an annual global conference called the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference. It's the largest uh, academic conference in the nation. It happens every September. So if you really want to hear uh, from experts and attend a conference, You can always go to traffickingconference.com and find out what's going on there and who's presenting. You know, I may take you up on that. Uh, You may see me in September at uh, at wherever that's taking place. And um, be awesome. It's online, so uh, you're good. I'll I'll do that. Thanks for joining us, but most importantly, thanks for the work you're doing every day to make a difference in people's lives and the research um, that has guided so many others along this path. I hope, I hope there's some people out there that want to help you make a difference. I hope there's some young people listening, um, thinking about career choices and, and exploring social work uh, as a, as a career choice. And I, I also hope there are people out there saying, you know what, I see some signs of, of uh, exploitation and vulnerability in someone I know and care about, and I'm, I'm going to do something about it. So thanks for spending time with us. Yeah, and let me, let me tell your listeners that there is a national hotline, 888-3737-888, and you can always call that hotline anonymously, and they will take your information, and they will pass it along to the task force closest to your community. So thank you so much, Frank, and thank you for your partnership back in the day, and thank you for even recognizing the little jewel of a program that was trying to help people uh, in in its community because that award helped us a lot to gain the credibility we needed to keep moving forward. So thank you so much. Oh yeah, no, and uh, I hope to continue the the dialogue and relationship. You've been listening to the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi and our guest, Dr. Celia Williamson from the University of Toledo. Thanks, Doctor. Thanks for joining our discussion with Dr. Celia Williamson. If you were as intrigued as I was, you can learn more by visiting Dr. Williamson's website at Celia Williamson, that's one word, dot com, and by listening to her podcast, Emancipation Nation, wherever you get your podcasts. Come back next time when we'll go behind and beyond the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.